Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karam. Today we're going to be talking about practical of the principle of individuality. This is the second part of our individuality series, which we went through principles last week. This builds into this whole conversation off of looking at how do we structure training knowing that everyone's going to respond differently to that said training. Really difficult task. Hopefully that we're going to get you net closer to understanding how we're going to do that and give you confidence to be able to do that. If you haven't checked out our website, we've updated it. It is now more course-like. So as you're progressing through the modules, you can actually sequence from start to finish and going through each one of the components of the modules, principles, practical, case study, which is only featured on the website, and then interview with the strength coach, as well as a journaling section where you can review your notes. And then even on top of that, going to the forum and be able to ask questions, communicate, get involved with the community, all right there at your disposal that really ties all of these things that we're doing on the podcast together. So if you've been listening and you're not a member on PH Podcast Curriculum, I highly suggest you do that. It is a really powerful tool for you, the coach, or just a general training enthusiast to take as much advantage of this. I go fast, I talk fast, I'm going to go through a lot of topics within these in these podcasts. You're going to need that written part and the collaborative effect from the forum and that journal to be able to get the most from these modules. If you haven't also seen, we have our book Strength Deficit, which is available for order through the website. This is your go-to resource to leverage eccentric versus concentric ratios to peak someone for a particular sport or an event. Available through our website, phpodcast.com. Definitely must read. You're going to really enjoy that. If you like my podcast, if you like what I'm talking about, how I talk about it, you're going to really, really get a lot from this book. Finally, I want to thank our sponsor, Realize.me. This is your command center for all health and wellness data. It's a huge resource for me. This is where I do all of my experiments. I just finished a four-part blog series with Realize.me going through why it's so important to have a centralized dashboard where all your information seamlessly flows to that dashboard. Combining that with now I can take that information, I can start to pick certain data points and create experiments. Those experiments allow me to see the cause and effect relationship of the intervention I created. It is a really, really powerful resource that not only has its ability to get you all this information in one single source dashboard, create experiments, can allow you to create more enhanced interventions by having discounts on various supplements, high quality supplements like Thorn and Designs for Sport, as well as creating or getting lab reports. This is another really big tool that Realize.me has that is going to allow you to be ex- exceedingly effective as a coach. And this is a really important one for something like individuality, because as we start to look at whenever we apply a stress, we don't know how it's going to respond. We need that data quickly easy to understand, and then be able to change as much as we need to change as rapidly as we need to change based off of what we're learning. Realize.me, your command center for health and wellness data. Without further ado, let's hit this practical part. This is going to be, it's going to be a, a long one, so you know, hang tight, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy. 
So if you listen to our podcast last week, we talked about we worked with complex, meaning that there's no certain path or direction we can go. Open systems, meaning that we have to procure energy from the outside world in multivariate chaotic environments. There's no certainty what's going to happen. And when we start to look at individuality, we have to take that into consideration because if we don't, we could be preparing for them for something very specific or very direct that places them in direct contrast to the world or the environment they have to work within or the setup them as an organism actually is set up as. And this is this is that moment where you probably go, well, what's the point? What do we do? And I think that's a fair point. And, and I think it may takes time to kind of process to what is a performance coach or strength conditioning coach's role. And a lot of times it has these phases, right? And we start to look at early on, it's self-experimentation, maybe a little bit of copying some other more experienced coaches, moving into start to form a philosophy or an ideology and really commit to that. And then over time, either through personal exploration or like maybe a personal injury or not really making the headway that you thought you should, you start to become more open to other ideas and then you start to become more well-rounded. And then you move into this like Dunning-Kruger, the people that know the most think they know the least kind of effect. And I think as a coach, you're always battling this thought process of is what we do really making a difference and is what we do really helping. And I can recall a conversation with a strength conditioning coach that was about 30 years my senior, worked at some prominent prominent universities, won multiple national championships, and really addressed me as you think what you do really matters. And he followed it with, when you buy a Lamborghini, you don't try to alter it. And it made me think for a second, if I'm doing this for the next 50 years of my life, and that is the end, and that is the actual wisdom you obtain through doing this for 50 or 40, 50 years, why start? I genuinely don't agree with that. In fact, I emphatically don't agree with that. And I think as a whole, if you're a competitor, if you're someone that looks at what I do should make a difference, then you automatically look at that as that's a person that has become cynical or become disenfranchised and they should go back to revisit the way and why they do things. And as we look at individuality, you can look at this as either a massive, unapproachable, unsolvable problem or an opportunity. You can say the same thing about medicine, right? These same universal truths, right? These are pulled from physics. So in physics, considered one of the most concrete sciences there is, meaning that that's proven through physical law, at least at least on planet Earth, is the same foundational root of what happens 
when someone treats someone with medicine. And if a doctor just says, what's the point? There's no difference here. And we're working with complex multivariate environments and organisms. What, what, is I, what can I really do here? Then what would be the point of medicine? Same thing could be said about financial planning. No one has any idea of what the market's going to do. Some people have a better instinct and hunch. Some people can use logical reasoning and models-based approach. There's people who make more money and there's people who have a higher success rate in medicine. So what does that say? It says you should absolutely, unequivocally, at least try to understand how can I address this unsolvable massive problem of every individual is unique and not going to respond the same way to said stress. I think that in itself should give you comfort and confidence to know going forward that what we do matters. That what we do makes a systemic impact for the people that choose to work with us. And make no exception. They are choosing to work with you regardless if they're an athlete or not. They make that decision every day. They're on the team, you're working with that team. They can make that decision to go in there and say, I'm not doing any of this. And there's creative ways to be insubordinate and mutinous if that's the way you want to look at it. They could just blow off lift, they could show up late, they could have to be forced to do punishment instead of a lift, they could skip reps, skip sets, or they could just transfer now. So they're making that choice to work with you. And if you're going in there with that belief that this doesn't matter, that we're just working with Lambos that are basically just already what they are, and there's no point in trying to enhance that, they shouldn't work with you. And my response to that coach who's been doing this for 40 years, my seniors, and to be honest, and this is, a, this is something that I want to be really transparent on, I've always, had a strug- I've always struggled with you know, people with authority. I mean, I, I grew up in a in an environment where authority figures were extremely inconsistent, very volatile, and quite frankly, not really out there for your best interest. So I've always struggled with that. I've always struggled with that. And the re- net result of what my home sports was like was really poor. So you build in a system of, or this mindset of, Anyone telling you something you can't do or you shouldn't do is either coming from a place of they couldn't do it or they don't want to do it. Or on the other end, it's not this reverse psychology approach. It's this actual belief that they, that we're all, we're born losers kind of thing. And I just defiantly just resisted that urge or that sensation. So when this guy tells me what we do doesn't matter. And this is after probably one of the most probably in my the biggest sacrifice I've ever made in my life for anything to get to this point career wise so my response to him was well is it the Lamborghini made of like fiberglass can we find a more resilient material what is the what is the efficiency of that engine is it just blowing out after one massive acceleration can we find ways to make that fuel more efficient what is the suspension like? Does it have issues with braking turning one way at a high speed? And you kind of get where I'm going with this, is that there's always something we can do. 
just a question of whether we want to do it or not. And that goes into the next phase of this practical. Sorry for the preamble to open this up, but just on my mind. And I feel like if we don't address this elephant in the room and strength conditioning of a bunch of people either really struggling with this idea of what we do and how we do it and what does it all mean, comparatively speaking to the people who are so self-assured and super confident in spite of all other things saying what they're doing is only situationally dependent. And I'll just say it, it's these very myopic views or obtuse views of performance training of doing the single thing of like deadlift barbell or barbell oriented movements like squat, bench and deadlift or only snatching and cleaning and jerking or only doing speed work or only doing bodybuilding or only doing, you know, X, Y, Z that they, they have the hammer and everything in front of them is a nail. They're wrong. They should be more, they should, they should demonstrate more humility and they should demonstrate a sense of curiosity to wonder what we actually do in that situation may work with that one individual person, but it won't work for the majority. That the law of averages will play out and it's always going to regress to the mean. Everything in nature regresses to the mean. Everything. You can pretty much say that's a physical law. So the reality is, is when you do powerlifting with one person, or if you do weightlifting with another person, that that second person you do it with is either going to go back to the more median or potentially away from the median. And when we think about that, I should say the median as, I'm sorry, from the bottom up or the top down, always toward the median. When we look at that reality, we should look at that second person as maybe we need to do something different with that person. Maybe we should have a better system. Maybe with their broken wrist, a clean isn't the great idea. Maybe that person that is extremely obese and has poor oxidative function and needs work capacity shouldn't be doing powerlifting. That their limiting factor is not absolute strength. It's actually in abundance. Maybe I need to get more biomechanical with them and look at them like they're asymmetrical. Maybe I need to do more unilateral exercises. But as we start to look at those folks that are really unsure versus the folks that are extremely sure, that we can start to look at this middle ground of you're either way too confident in what you're doing or you need to demonstrate more confidence and we need to, again, regress to the mean. So we're thinking about individuality and we're thinking about what we do makes a difference. The question then becomes, how do we do that consistently? How do we make a difference consistently with everyone that walks through our doors, that chooses to work with us? And we could leverage again medicine on this one. And we could go through this very simple, very easy to understand methodology, which a lot of medicine practices do, even like legal and other major complex environments. Create a checklist. And when in doubt, make it very simple. Surgeon, wash your hands. Have all the necessary tools. Start on time. Do a head count of who's in the room. 
have everyone understand their role before they start. Know what leg you're operating on. In the law, they talked about judges make really poor decisions before lunch. Checklist. Have a certain amount of time you're going to allocate towards each case. Allow for a 15-minute break in between each case. If it's going on uh, longer than an expected time, designate a break period in between. That person in front of you deserves the right to be equally and fairly tried. These are all important things. So in strength conditioning, create a checklist. We're not better than surgeons. We're not better than, than judges. Create a checklist. It helps. Every day I walk in, what time are you supposed to be at work? What's the order of operations? Set up, review who's coming in and which group, who's coaching which station. What is the workout of that given day? What is a successful day? Did they hit their sets and reps? Did they hit their tempo? Did they hit their designated rest period? What is their standard of execution? Top of the thigh, parallel, chest up, perpendicular to the ground and squat. Shin, vertical, shin perpendicular to the ground, torso parallel to the ground on a hinge. Touch your chest on a bench, lock out your elbows. Chin above the bar, elbows locked in the bottom on a pull-up. Did they or didn't they? Start with that. You might have a difference of opinion on biomechanics of these squats, but have, have a standard. Did you or did you not execute that standard? Check the box. And then from there, if you have all those things in place, you're on time, you executed, you performed at your absolute best, then you can evaluate your program, whether it was really effective for that individual or not. But we're gonna go into this as, with our reliability in place, now we have to test our validity. And that comes into looking at two different, really strong and really important notes when we're looking at complex, multivariate, open environments that we need to place. And we, we talked about this in our module on efficiency in coaching and reviewing the book, The Goal. How do we get more throughput? It's finding the bottleneck. It's creating more efficient pathways to the end goal, eliminating unnecessary components, fluff, if you call it. And what that comes with is creating two things when you're looking at your program to accommodate individual differences. One being constraints or reducing the environment to a more controllable entity. And then two controls. We're applying interventions to accommodate that person's end goal most consistently and most appropriately. So constraints are really important for me. They really are. Constraints are my rules. Constraints are how I structure what I should do based off of what I know I shouldn't do. That's an important distinction. Because when I'm thinking about a constraint, I think it should be as logical as If it hurts, don't do it. Ah, this hurts. You shouldn't do that. 
as common sense as that might seem, it's very, very readily broken. People do things that hurt all the time for some sort of arbitrary reason. When people tell me that they are squatting with or deadlifting with back pain with a barbell and they're not competing in weightlifting or powerlifting, why? Athletes more specifically. I mean, I work a lot with Jen Pop, but they tell me that all the time. But the same thing with athletes. My back hurts. Coach made me back squat. Coach made me deadlift. Have we gotten that diagnosed? Yeah. I had an L5 herniation. That's not good. Why are you back squatting if you have these like serious issues? We're creating more axial loading on someone who has a compressive like compressive injury. It's impingement. It's compression on one side. We should not be compressing it more. And you're going to force biomechanics that, quite frankly, are not conducive to performance training. They're going to find a strategy that doesn't hurt, which is probably contrary to the strategy you want to use to get that person to perform at a higher level. So if it hurts, don't do it. Another one, if they have restriction in range of motion passively, they're not going to have it actively. Guaranteed. If you can't get there, if I'm pushing your leg or arm in a certain direction and I feel a premature block from the tissues that are holding that leg in that fixed position, you won't be able to get there actively. So if you do a range of motion assessment, passive and active, and then you get to that point where, well, I just need 135 to warm up on squat. You don't got it. Like, you don't have that range of motion. So, therefore, we need to address that first and foremost. That the lower hanging fruit is improving and restoring range of motion. So, that pattern, when it's fatigued or pushed to threshold, can be maintained. That's such a critical thing to understand. Anything pushed to threshold will reveal whatever you don't have. And threshold's three outlets. Force, or really heavy. Velocity, or really fast. Or work, or really long. You can keep that, you can keep that in the back of your mind. That if they don't have the prerequisite motor pattern, either through range of motion or control, when it's pushed to threshold, they will not be able to maintain whatever sub-maximal position that you were able to do so far. So that's a really important one. And the final one is really looking at differences from left to right. Looking at, did they have issues, or even front to back, asymmetries from one leg to the next, one arm to the other, in this demonstration of strength in the vertical, horizontal, or even rotational vector, yes or no? And we should prioritize that. And you, you might hear the grumblings or the eye rolls of just squatting is just a lot more direct linear path. Says the person that likes to squat. It's really not. And I hate to break everyone's bubble here, but absolute load is not the greatest determinant of performance. It's really not. In fact, quite frankly, it might actually be, in a lot of times, an actual inhibitor of performance. Because people get myopically focused on certain things like load 
and they sacrifice performance through technique, range of motion, control, potentially even pain. And they might further drive asymmetries into a, a negative tailspin. So biomechanically, we have those. Then we can look at the other one, where we can look at potentially looking deeper into something like physiology or bioenergetics. That anaerobic power ceiling is contingent upon oxidative capacity. Said differently, is if I can't recover between my bouts of anaerobic or phosphogen-based work, I limit the amount of density I can do in a training session and therefore lower the potential I can get from anaerobic work. Train slow, be slow, train fast, be fast is a gross misconception if you don't attach the simple idea of if aerobic fitness is poor, you will not recover in the adequate time to get to that quality of anaerobic expression within a training session. And that lowers the overall ceiling you could reach from a phosphagen power perspective. So if you want to spread fast, you need to accrue more volume, more distance at a high intensity, a maximal intensity, and that's contingent upon your ability to recover from one bout to the next. And if you have poor oxidative capacity, and we see a lot of profound research looking at capillary density, mitochondrial density, mitochondrial fusion versus fission rate, monocarboxylate transport systems, transferring lactate from one anaerobic muscle fiber that doesn't have the buffering capacity within the cell to a more oxidative muscle fiber that's more rich in mitochondria to convert that back to pyruvate to go into that mitochondria, convert to acetyl-CoA, go through the citric acid cycle, electron transport cycle, remove water, CO2, produce ATP, allow for calcium to bind to troponin C and create a muscle contraction. It is compelling and overwhelming when we see lack of oxidative capacity. And I'm not saying run a marathon, and I'm not saying run a mile with everybody, but having general capacity by hitting from zone two to zone three every once in a while is extremely beneficial for anaerobic athletes that have a higher ceiling. And the same could be said about aerobic athlete not having enough phosphogen power and they're limiting their ceiling from an aerobic perspective, that they are lowering the potential for how fast they could run. They're working at a percentage of a percentage that's not really that high in the first place. It's not cross-training. It's not looking at, oh, we're just doing stuff to be diverse with our systems. It's looking at it from the context of eventually we're going to hit a threshold based off a percentage of what our ceiling is and some of the energy systems or bioenergetic systems that I need to perform at a high level. And if one part of that ratio is really down, you're probably going to limit performance overall. And the final one would be looking at biomotor, looking at what is my force capacity, what is my velocity capacity, what is my work capacity. And when I look at those things individually, we can easily attribute force as this, as this kind of uh, 
panacea that if you just get them strong, everything else is fixed. And I think there's a certain level of of exaggeration there, to be honest. And we've got to look at it from the psychology of what we do. And this goes back into overly constrained environments might actually be counterproductive. But the best way to constrain someone is to put them in a very secure, stable setting and try to exert one single quality as much as you possibly can. Like back squat, like deadlift, like bench. If I'm a strength and coach and I'm grasping at straws as to what I'm supposed to do, when I'm supposed to do it, might as well double down on doing something really well. And we have a really, really high ability to create force with our athletes. And it's really important, but not at the expense of everything else. That's a really important thing to consider. That's a really important thing to consider. So as we start to break down constraints, and we start to think about what are the biomechanical, bioenergetic, and biomotor levels, creating rules in that direction. The next part is looking at even more obvious and logical things. Training age. If they're really, really new to training, make it simple. If they're more experienced, add a little bit of more complicated elements to it. They're coming off injury. Probably want to start to remove those joints that are in pain. Go single arm, go single leg. Go from a tall kneeling position. Go from a supine prone position. Other part is, are they off season or in season? It's a novel thought. They got a lot more volume of work through practice, school, and life during season. We should probably reduce our volume of work in season, maybe even our frequency. They have less volume of work going on with practice going on in the off season. Maybe we want to increase our frequency and volume there. That's a really big key to understand. So if you don't want to get too deep in the weeds of the biomechanical, bioenergetic, or even the biomotor, go on to just very obvious things, something that everyone can agree on. Oh, you haven't done this very often before? Let's start off easy. Oh, you're injured? Let's just remove that joint. Oh, wow, you're in season? Okay, we should do a little bit less. So that's looking at constraints. The next is looking at controls. And this is the intervention based off of those constraints or those rules. This is the program. And we have other principles here. One thing that's beautiful about principles are true, we got context, right? So if we look at it from this idea of our now remaining principles, specificity, it should look, feel, and smell like what we want to do eventually, right? We should have some sort of commonality between our training and what we're trying to accomplish. Progressive overload, we should be making some small incremental change positively every single week, whether it's adding more volume through adding more sets of reps, adding more intensity by adding more weight every week or moving at a higher velocity, or potentially it might be more density of doing the same work in less time or more work in the same time is profoundly impactful to the bottom line. Progression, going from simple to complex, or complicated, I should say. We should think about going from slow to fast, stable to unstable, a closed environment to a open environment, 
a high constraint to a low constraint. Adding in elements of difficulty as you go is just smart intuitive training. Paying attention to critical drop off of when something is no longer effective. What is that threshold? We are no longer meeting the objective of training. We've lost range of motion. We've lost position. We can't maintain tempo. We can't hit our rep scheme. We need to either go light, lighter, or we need to stop altogether. Those are our two choices. And then reversibility, use it or lose it. That if we stop training, eventually we'll decay and atrophy whatever results we obtain through training. So what is the appropriate time away before we start to lose whatever it is that we gained? These are critical for the beginning of in-season and when coaches are fighting for time. This is critical for when do we start our off-season. This is critical for Olympic sport athletes and summer training. These are all really, really important things as we start to look through. But we can look at constraints as our rules. These are things that we should be cognizant of. You know, hey, make sure we're cutting the right leg. Make sure we're we're looking at the right case right case report or we're evaluating someone in, in court. Okay, you know, we should understand that there are certain rules to strength conditioning. And then we should start to look at the controls in which we can play within those rules, right? You know, we look at those rules as those are the, the parameter of the court. Don't go out of bounds. Don't foul someone. Don't hold someone. Don't create, don't do pass interference. Whatever the rules are. And then we can start to look at, all right, I'm going to run a 3-4. I'm going to run spread. I'm going to run this play in mass ball. Those are the interventions that we can create to best work within the rules of the game. Nowhere in, said there, nowhere in there did I say we have to do powerlifting. We have to do weightlifting. You have to do undulating periodization. You have to do conjugate periodization. You have to do this program in order to be successful. And I talk a lot about, about that in Strength Deficit, which is a program, a model. It's a framework. It's in my best interest to say to you, you should just do this. But it's not in your best interest. And that's why I don't say it. I think every single coach that takes the time to write a program needs to re really be responsible with saying what this is actually for. So as you start to break down your programming and what you need to do, remember constraints. Those are our rules. Remember controls. That's our intervention. And then just go back to the default of scientific method. Create a hypothesis. Start to create testing procedures or an intervention. Make sure it's reliable. It's testing what it's supposed to be testing. It's testing what it's supposed to be testing and valid. It actually makes sense, relatively speaking, to the goal. And then finally, try to review that hypothesis. Did we or did we not prove or disprove what happened? And be honest on both ends. Don't remove noisy data. Don't try to make something up that's simply not there. Remember, everything's eventually going to regress to the mean. Regress to the mean. So if we start to look at our bell curve distribution of results, everything's going to fall into this low responder, average response, high response type of ratio. And then from there, you're thinking, I'm just trying to move that bell curve to the right, to the high responder side, so that my low responder was my average or my average responder before. Through more rules, aka more checklists. 
and more direct interventions based off of those rules. Then I start to create a program that meets that person where they're at. And I start to look at that person's got a broken elbow, that person's got a broken ankle, that person's first year training, that person's fourth year training, that person's in season, that person's off season. Okay, that means a lot of differences. That person has this biomechanical rule. They have different range of motion, asymmetry, or they're in pain. That person has different bioenergetic rules. They're oxidative, oxidatively really poor. They're phosphorogen really, really poor. Or they have these biomotor abilities. Forces down, velocities down, capacities up, nowhere to go. Then we start to create our interventions, looking at specificity, progressive overload, progression, critical drop-off, sometimes called diminishing returns. And then we finally look at reversibility. Then I create my program. And then from there, I do a, I do a pre-mortem, post-mortem, or in a scientific experiment. I look at what is going to be the thought of my training here and why I'm applying this intervention based off of these constraints and controls. I create my research design, who's going to be in what program, how am I going to implement that program, and then I review, I debrief, I do my postmortem. And when we start to finish up each off-season and we look back retroactively of where everyone fell on that distribution of the bell curve, our best case is to understand that there's going to be a still different level of responses to our training stress. The hope is everyone had a positive outcome. And the hope is that everyone was up and to the right in terms of results on that bell curve. And as we start to look at our data points, not getting too validated or even invalidated, looking at it from, wow, no one got good results here. Getting back on the horse and drove back to the drawing board and realizing every single offseason is a new beginning and we need to start from scratch again in a positive way. That's what individuality is. That same person that you worked with the year before, it's going to be different next year. They're going to be different the following year. This is why testing and assessing is so important. So I hope you guys all like that one. Um, this is a really important series that we're going to go through in training. Uh, as as much as you probably like, I have I know my principles. Uh, this is something for me that I I really really feel strongly for in terms of I want to be able to bring a lot of value because I think a lot of people undervalue principles in a way that, quite frankly, is uh, is alarming. Um, could be we skipped a lot of really critical steps in education. It could be that the barrier of entry is really low. Uh, it could be, I just didn't really care about it when I was an undergrad and or when I was preparing for my CSCS or all the above, I don't know. But the more and more I talk to coaches and the more and more I'm talking to people about training, the more and more I realize how valuable it is to talk about principles and going back to what's true and still getting this resistance on areas of of you different than, than that person that told you to do this online. You realize that, right? It could be pharmaceutically, pharmaceutically or genetically. You should probably do something different. And as we start to look at 
the grand scheme of things and getting confidence in what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it, you can default to principles as to those are going to be true and not to your foundation. That as you start to evolve and grow and you start to think you know less, you can take solace and comfort knowing that principles, no matter what, are always going to be true. And you can provide high value to that person in front of you based off very simply that this is important and this matters and we have principles to guide us. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Check out the module. I definitely think it will help in terms of seeing the visual here as well as just honestly helping some sort of written form of this because I'm sure as I'm talking, I'm probably going really fast and there's elements that I'm probably skipping within a module. So get a chance to get on that module and then also get on the form. Let's talk about it. Let's get into potential case studies. Let's get into potential conversations. Let's, let's ask some questions, right? Let's talk about how we can improve your learning through the forum. Appreciate you guys. And uh, we'll see you guys next week for our interview with a strength coach.